Good morning. Now let's go ahead and uh, begin class with a prayer. And we start with prayer this morning. We've had a prayer request from the administration of, 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 the, of the city hall that the person who runs this building, Andrew Morkert, his wife has been quite ill in the hospital, ending up in the ICU. And they've asked us to go and pray, put her on a prayer list and pray for her. I don't know all the details, but I know she's, she's very sick in the ICU. So her name's Christine. So gracious Heavenly Father, we, we come before you today and we want to thank you for your grace and your kindness and your love. We know that you're a God of uh, creation and recreation and health and life. And we've asked uh, that we lift up uh, Christine to you and that you will uh, intervene in her case in accordance with your will, that you will give the doctors and nurses wisdom and strength to her body and return her to health as you know is best. Be with us today as we study your word, that we can draw closer to you, and that the light of your truth may lighten the world, and that the whole world and the whole universe can be healed from this uh, infection of sin and deviations from your design, and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 12 in the uh, quarterly, the book of James, and the title this week is Prayer, Healing, and Restoration. That was a timely one. When you looked at the title this week, any questions come to mind? The memory verse, James 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. What is the connection between confessing sins to one another and healing? What is the connection between confessing sins to one another and healing? Any, any thoughts on that? I guess a psychiatrist would know that. A psychiatrist would know that. Yeah, I'm going to explore that with you with my perspective in just a moment. Yes. In that context, it almost sounds like spiritual healing. It almost sounds like spiritual healing. Any other thoughts? Russell? Part of the the remedy in order to bring us back into harmony with the original design, God's law of love. Confession wasn't part of the original design, but it's now part of the, the solution. Because it, it involves a restoration of relationships, both within interpersonal, interhuman relationships, and the relationship with the divine. Everybody, see how that, how, that what he, where he's going with this? Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yes. Confessing implies acknowledging, and acknowledging is the first step of growing beyond. Okay, okay. So uh, if we go down this line, in violation of the law of love, what happens in our brains, in, in our sense of self, when we violate that law of love, when we lie, when we cheat, when we exploit, when we manipulate, when we, when we do something injurious to another? What happens inside of us when we do that? If you remember some of the lectures we've had here, it disrupts the salience network. Remember the salience network? And I won't go through the whole network with you, but it results in activation of stress cascades. Your fear circuits upregulate. You become shame, you experience shame and guilt, and you're fearful of acceptance of others. Uh, this causes one to become self protective. And, and think about a simple example. You've been stealing from your employer, and then your boss calls you into their office for something completely unrelated. But what happens to you when you get called into the office? What's going on in your heart and mind knowing you've been stealing? Are you going to go in with a sense of calmness and a sense of ease? Or are you going to be very stressed? You're going to be very stressed. Why? Because your own conscience is guilty, because you're out of harmony with the design. And so, and you can just extrapolate that. Husband who's cheating on his wife, and he comes around the corner, and she's, on, she's picked up his iPhone. Is he relaxed about that, or is he stressed about that? Why is he stressed? Oh, is there some text I didn't get? Some phone? You see, there's, there's this, you can't have, so when, you, when you're out of harmony with design, there's this internal change where we upregulate stress circuitry. We also become self-critical. We're not at peace with our own self. Even if no one self finds out, we are critical of ourselves in our own heart. So this leads to, the guilt and shame leads to avoidance, fracturing of relationships, disengagement, lying, lying verbally, lying in the presentation and the veneer, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the mess, the, 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 the mask that we put on, the facade that we put on when we go out, we 
put on this, this, you know, public face and persona, lying about how we feel and presenting ourselves because we're not really at peace. We cover up reality. We rationalize and make excuses in our minds. Think, you know, the trails our minds are going down now. We blame others. It wasn't me. It was the, it was the woman's fault. If she didn't bring me that fruit, I wouldn't have never taken it. And so we, we, we get into the blame game. We deny. And this is a classic. And you think of all the levels of denial. Uh, I really don't have a problem. I can handle it. It's, it's not that big a deal. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm good. Uh, we, we go into appeasement. Appeasement is not necessarily appeasement of the person that's wronged. We're appeasing our consciences. So we get into people who become hyper religious and hyper, hyper, um, uh, devoted into keeping certain rituals. They're rigid. They can't be flexible because they feel guilty for some other thing they haven't resolved. So they're going to keep every other rule perfectly and they're not going to have any tolerance for any deviations of the rule because they're so guilt-ridden inside they haven't resolved it. So they're trying to appease their own guilt by being perfect in their behavior. Penances. People play penances with things. They're going to they're gonna do things as a, some way to pay back. So I did this. Well, I'm going to do this, and this will make up for what I did there. And they go through this psychological game in order to try to avoid their guilt. Uh, disengagement. They withdraw from relationships. They withdraw from community. They withdraw from going to church. They withdraw. They withdraw, and they begin isolating. Anger. They're irritable and angry people. No freedom. No, no. I, I mean, as I'm saying this, are all of you both remembering maybe transient moments in your life when you started down that trail, but God's grace brought you back and you repented and left that trail? Or know people who were still on that trail, still doing that kind of stuff? Uh, ang- uh, anger, resentment, holding, holding grudges. Uh, uh, anybody that does something similar to you that you've done to somebody else, you, you just hold it against them forever. Uh, attempts to soothe self with alcohol, drugs, Workaholism, games, uh, relationships, uh, shopping, gambling, adventures, uh, thrill-seeking, movies, fantasy books, all these things are oftentimes a way to try and soothe one's lack of peace with oneself to distract oneself away from the issue that's really eating at their core. And then false theologies. False theologies to avoid guilt and the shame of having a self-centered character through typically penal substitutionary types of thinking. Well, all my sins have been confessed. I confess them to Jesus. He knows they're paid past, present, and future. doesn't matter what I do now because it's all been taken care of and I'm legally declared righteous in God's eyes, even though I'm not, but I can't be, so it's all good. You see a problem with this type of thinking. And all of this, this whole, all these different dysfunctional methodologies that people go down result in inflammatory cascades in our body, in, which increase all kinds of illnesses. Illnesses that are associated with increased inflammation, increased inflammation can come from a variety of sources, lifestyle directly, but specifically when your salience network is out of harmony, when you stay under this stress cascade, when you don't have peace, when you're chronically guilt-ridden, when you're a grudge holder, you upregulate your stress circuitry and you live under stress, increasing inflammation. And diseases that are associated with chronic inflammation include Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is really now driven by chronic inflammation that causes insulin resistance on the subreceptors and neural circuits that cause the inability of the brain to clear certain toxic proteins that drive the whole cascade of events. I won't go through that with you now, but it's inflammation that's driving this. Uh, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, cancers, obesity, diabetes 1 and 2, diabetes 1 and 2, um, arthrosclerosis, heart disease, strokes, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, inflammatory bowel diseases, Sjogren's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and many more. Our bodies don't do well under chronic inflammation, which is a result of a mind that's not at peace. One of the results, one of the reasons, I don't want to say it's the only reason you have inflammation. There are other reasons. But one of the reasons is a mind that's not at peace. So where then, with this in mind, does confession and come in, and how is it connected to healing? That's a rhetorical question you're going to talk about. So. No, 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 if you want to answer, go for it. Well, I, I was going to pick up on what was said over here. I mean, the things you've been describing seem to me are symptoms. People trying to solve the problem by dr- addressing the symptoms. Confession allows the person to acknowledge the core problem and then seek where that core problem can truly be remedied. 
And how many get tricked? I didn't even my notes, just as you said that. How many get tricked into confessing what is not even the problem to be confessed? Do you understand what I mean by that? They confessed an act. They confessed a deed. For instance, a, a person who cheats on their spouse confesses the cheating on the spouse. But they don't confess the insecurity, fear, self-centeredness in the heart that led to the cheating on the spouse. They just confess the cheating on the spouse. And the cheating on the spouse is a symptom of something more deeply wrong in the heart. And how many get caught in the cycle focused on the deeds? This is to go back to that penal view of God and, and, and sin is bad stuff you do. And what you confess is you confess the bad deeds because the bad deeds have to get their proper punishments rather than going to the heart condition that leads to the bad deeds. Follow what I'm saying? Yes, you have a hand up. Go ahead. Uh, sin, one definition we've heard of it that I really like is sin is meeting legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. So the cheating on the spouse, the insecurity, the insecurity issues are, there are some legitimate needs that have nothing to do with the spouse. It has to do with the individual's personal needs and struggles that you're saying of how they see God and, and, but they're going about it in an illegitimate way because of the misconception. Yes, and it spirals down because what is the root issue there? It is fear and insecurity, trying to be validated by someone else, finding them attractive, that gives them a transient sense of, ooh, I'm somebody, I'm something. But an act being outside of God's design, uh, exploiting another, breaking a vow, cheating, lying, that act itself only brings more self-condemnation as the conscience convicts, self-judgment, where our self-esteem and inadequacy grows, and so we feel more insecure, we fall lower, we need more external validation, we're likely to repeat the cycle. Right. Yes. So confessing to others. Others, and I want to make this clear, this is not confessing to everyone. This is not going on Facebook and making a confession, which some people have been doing. This is not what this is. This, that would be foolishness. This is confessing, and notice, call the elders together, okay? This is confessing to people who are mature in Christ-like character. They actually love you as the person. They have grace. They have patience. They have understanding. They see past the behavior to the, to the person in, in heart and character who's struggling with an issue. They have a mind focused on God's design to heal and restore the individual, which works to reduce. And so then in that context, what is the big issue about confession? What, and I want you just to think of your own experience. When you've done something that you are convicted was wrong. You blew it. You did wrong. You experience not only guilt, what do you experience? Shame. And what does guilt and shame cause you to experience? Fear. Fear of what? Fear of rejection. Fear of rejection. Fear that if somebody found out, nobody would like me anymore. Uh, Nobody would want to hang out with me. They would think I'm horrible. They They would condemn me. So it's fear of rejection. And the fear of rejection in relational context, whether it's family, whether it's church family, leads people to put up boundaries, put up defense mechanisms to isolate, to handle it on their own, to alienate, which only means they spiral down. And they get weaker and they get more stuck in their own struggles. So the purpose of confession is to disabuse the person of what? The fact that they are, to disabuse the person of the idea that they are abandoned, they're cast off, they're not worthy, they can't be loved. It is to, it is to reconnect them with community that loves them. And this is what 12 steps do, probably the most important thing a 12 step meeting does. When someone goes to a 12 step meeting, Hi, I'm Joe, and I'm an addict. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Joe. Glad you're here. Exactly. Isn't that what happens? (laughs) That's exactly what happens. Now, and they get accepted for who they are. Now, think about the landscape and the context. Is there really ever a 12-step meeting in which somebody who confesses their addiction gets the message from the meeting that addictions are good? That it's acceptable to continue your addiction? Is that, ever, is that message ever sent in a 12-step meeting? No. 
Is it very clear and understood that when they confess their addiction, that the addiction is to be overcome and condemned, while they, the person, are to be freed and loved as the person while they struggle? You see, this is what supposed to be the church is supposed to be like. When you come to church, you're to be loved, knowing that you're struggling with the problems in your life, and and that. But imagine in a church setting saying, "Hi, I'm Joe, and I'm struggling with masturbation." I didn't hear welcome, Joe. (laughs) You see how that works? You see, y'all got uncomfortable, didn't you? You see how that works? But if somebody did say that, I'm talking with pornography. Do you know, according to the data, more than 50% of pastors view pornography weekly. Weekly. Seven out of ten men in the Christian pews view pornography weekly. Three out of ten women view pornography weekly they go to ch- in, in the church and can they come and say hey I'm, I'm Joe and I'm struggling with porn I looked at porn this week uh, you're the elder I think we're going to have to have an elders meeting I mean it, what, what, what would happen Maybe the church would grow. <laughs> the church would only grow if it was accepted like at the 12 step meeting. The person was loved and then ministered to and put in connection with people who could be accountability partners to help them overcome, like a sponsor in a 12 step thing, to put them on a path to recovery, the church would grow. But if the church responds like history, and how does the church respond historically? Kick them out. Kick them out. The scholarship. Yes, put, censor them first because we don't want to be cruel. We will censor them. And what censors them mean? That they're still a member, but they're removed from all office, and they're disciplined, and then they have to meet with the pastor once a week for a Bible study. That's what they have to do. Come to a Bible study with the pastor once a week. Who's watching porn. Who's probably watching porn, yeah. <laughs> okay, go ahead. But in the same sense, we know that God looks at pride as one of the worst sins, and if somebody stood up and said, hello, my name is Joe, and I'm a very proud person, that'd be okay. That wouldn't bother people. Well, we're proud to have you here. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, my name is Tina. I'm a gossiper. That wouldn't bother people. What have you heard lately? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but if you stood up and said what you said. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's all a sin. So notice, I tell you this. The first two steps of the 12 steps, and by the way, the 12 steps, I have to teach my patients with addictions this. The 12 steps are not about avoiding substances. That's not what they're about. Many, many, many addicts don't realize this as they go into the 12. They think it's about, well, it's about how I can avoid my addiction. No, it's not. The 12 steps are about character transformation. That's what they're about. And the first two, here are the first two. We admit that we are powerless over our addiction and our life lives have become unmanageable. And we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, do you notice how these are worded? Why do the 12 steps not say, I admit that I am powerless over my addiction and that my life has become unmanageable? And that I have come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. Because they rely on themselves instead of God. It doesn't say it that way. It's always we admit that we... Why? We're a village. We all help each other. This is exactly right. One One of the things of sin, when you sin, it causes guilt and shame. Guilt and shame causes a person to isolate from community. And in isolation from community, Satan has power over you. Part of the healing process is to come back into community of people who love you. And you can't get well outside that community of love. And this is what the church is supposed to be. But I'm going to tell you the church cannot get there, in my view, until the church accepts God as the creator and his law as design law. This is how life is built. Sin is deviation from the design, and we're working to restore people to harmony. And so the acts of sin are symptoms of where they're still deviant and shows us areas that needed to work on in the same way if we see a patient with fever or a patient with nausea or a patient with vomiting. These are the behaviors. They tell us there's something wrong, and it points us to a direction to intervene. But when we operate 
right under the imperial law view that sin is all about the deeds that you do and you've broken the rules, then those rules have to be punished. And then the solutions we offer people is, have you confessed your sin and asked for forgiveness? Have you claimed the blood of Jesus for the payment for your sin? Yes, I've done that. Well, do you want to be rebaptized? Okay, let's do that. Now you're all good. And there's no power there. A form of godliness that denies the power thereof. When we confess to healthy, mature believers, we experience, experience, and it's shocking. I can tell you I have been there. I have committed sin in my life that have made me feel ashamed and afraid that no one could accept me again. And I remember the healing when I confessed that to good Christian friends and they still loved me. And they still valued me. They didn't value the behaviors, but they valued me and that empowered me to never want to do those behaviors again. Can we be a community for each other? Listen to this commentary out of uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 239, about Joseph's brothers. After the burial of Jacob, fear again filled the hearts of Joseph's brothers. Notwithstanding his kindness towards them, in other words, he was kind, but they'd ignored the evidence of his kindness. Conscious guilt made them distrustful and suspicious. It might be that he had but delayed his revenge out of regard to their father, and now he would come visit upon them the long-deferred punishment for their crime. They dared not appear before him in person, but sent a message. Your father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye also say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray you, now the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they they did you evil, and now we pray forgiveness that you forgive the trespass of, of the servants of your God your, and Father. Um, this message affected Joseph to tears, and encouraged by this, his brothers came and fell down before him with words, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph's love for his brothers was deep and unselfish, and he was pained at the thought that they could regard him as cherishing a spirit of revenge towards them. Why, and I tell you this, where did their, their idea that Joseph could be revengeful towards them come from? That's exactly right. Why did Adam and Eve run in the garden? Afraid of who? But where did that fear come from? When God approached them in the garden, not only did he approach them gently, they said, they said, we hid because we were afraid, because we were naked. And God's words were, <clears throat> what's, the, what's the question imply? You're not hearing that from me. You didn't hear me say you're naked. I didn't point out any defect in you. Adam, that's your own conscience. You're not happy with you anymore. You broke the design. And now internal to yourself, you're not at peace. You're fearful. You're guilt-ridden. You're, I didn't do this to you. I love you. I'm, I'm your source of stuff. I can heal you, but you're running from me because you misjudge me now. You're projecting your own self-condemnation out on me and think I look at you this way. The woman caught in adultery, thrown down before Christ. Imagine, seriously, put yourself, just look at the news in the Middle East today. <clears throat> and imagine a woman drug out in front of a group of those Taliban thrown down on the street in the middle of the act of adultery. If you were that woman, how confident are you you're getting up from that? Terrible. She expects she's, she, she, she knows she's dying. She just hopes they hit her in the head first, knock her out. Hit, me with a, hit, hit my head with that first stone. Crush my skull because I don't want to feel it. But after Christ dispatches the crowd, what does he say to her? Where are those your accusers? And she said, now what's the implication? Where are your accusers? Now who's left here? Her and Christ. And he says, where are your accusers? What's implied by the question? I am not one of your accusers. It's beautiful. And not to leave any doubt, he says explicitly, neither do I condemn you. 
condemnation doesn't come from God. Unlike the penal substitutionary view that has God sitting in judge, policing the breaches in his law, and anybody who doesn't get a legal payment, then God must condemn. And they've got God as the, con- the condemner of the universe. He's not. It's our own guilt that drives us wedge. So unresolved guilt makes us fearful, it makes us suspicious, it makes us distrustful. We, rather than looking inward and being truthful and seeing our own souls in need of reconstruction, renewal, where David eventually got, search me and see the wicked way in me, O Lord, create me a clean heart, O God. That's where he eventually got. Instead of doing that, we look outward and we project onto others our own sense of condemnation and believe others, if they just knew, would would hate us, they would condemn us, they'd want to punish us, they'd want to get rid of us. And so we lie. We create facades. We put masks on. We live behind our masks. We can't let people get too close because if people get too close, well, that's very stressful for us. Let me give you an analogy. And I see my my patients do this all the time. This analogy helps them. Imagine you uh, had one of these Hollywood makeup artists dress you up in the Hollywood makeup that makes you look like Hillary Clinton. (laughs) If you're a lady. (laughs) You know, and they do this. They could do this. They could do this for most of you. Put the whole gamut on, everything, hair, da-da-da. And you, with that costume, crash a White House party. And across the, the, the forum, there's like way on the other side, Bill Clinton's over there and he waves at you. Not too stressful, you wave back. But as he starts walking over, what do you feel the closer he gets? <laughs> Why do you get stressed the closer he gets? Because you, you know you're wearing a mask, and you're, this is how people who live behind masks feel in all their relationships. As long as they keep people at a certain distance, they're comfortable. But if people start to get close to them, they become very stressed. And they act out in their relationships. They poison the relationships to drive people away because they're too fearful to let people close. This gives us some some insight then into the unrepented wicked in the end. Think it through. The unrepented wicked in the end, those who have not had a renewed heart, what will it be like when they come face to face to God's presence of all love and truth, where their lies and denial cannot keep them from seeing their own selves anymore. Listen to this description, uh, commentary out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 329. The context is Moses coming down off the mountain with his face radiating. It says, during that long time spent in communion with God, the face of Moses had reflected the glory of the divine presence. Unknown to himself, his face shone with a dazzling light when he descended from the mountain. Aaron, as well as the people, shrank away from Moses, and they were afraid to come near him. Seeing their confusion and terror, but ignorant of its cause, he urged them to come near. Now listen to what he holds out to them. He held out to them the pledge of God's reconciliation and assured them of his restored favor. They perceived in his voice nothing but love and entreaty. And at last, one ventured to approach him. Too odd to speak, he silently pointed to the countenance of Moses and toward heaven. The great leader understood his meaning. Now get these words. In their conscious guilt, feeling themselves still under the divine pleasure, they could not endure the heavenly light, which had they been obedient to God, would have filled them with joy. There is fear in guilt. The soul that is free from sin will not wish to hide from heavenly light. Do you get this? What was causing the disruption? What was breaking up their unity? What was causing the barrier? What was the, the, the obstacle to them coming into unity? Notice God was restored favor. He was reconciling toward them. He had nothing but grace and love toward them. Yet they still couldn't come into his presence. Why? Conscious guilt. Understand, this penal substitutionary view that they present about God is they haven't confessed their sins yet. They haven't had the blood of Jesus paid yet. So God is still righteously wrathful at them and his wrath still needs to be taken out on them. Until that wrath is removed, they can't come back toward God. This is how God is presented. And it's a lie. The reality is we 
unreconciled, unhealed, unrenewed, still suffering with our own guilt, our own self-condemnation, coming into the presence of truth only magnifies our awareness of our own inadequacies and fears, and it terrifies us when we run. We can't be there. I've never really understood the light and why light was so intimidating to them. Is there something from your perspective psychologically? It, was it different from sunlight? Yes, it was different from sunlight. Well, well obviously it was, but what, what was the... It's the light of love and truth that penetrates into the psyche of a being. It's the light of love and truth. Is that like the Shekinah glory? Shekinah glory. It's what it is. It is the Shekinah glory. So it has nothing to do actually with... It's not photons. It's not photons. So how, did, well, how was that displayed on Moses' face? Well, you know, we only can speculate at this point. It was also displayed on, on Stephen's face when he was being stoned. And if you value Ellen White's writings, as she talks about the future, when the death decree comes out to kill the, those who are righteous when they come to do so, our faces will radiate like that and they fall away from us. Christ, actually, in the Mount of Transfiguration, showed this same light. Notice, um, if, if photons come from the sun, now what happens if you stand in the sun? You, know, you will be consumed. You will not exist there anymore. You will be, I mean, I'm not talking sunlight, I'm talking in the sun. <laughs> okay? Uh, Jesus is radiating light brighter than the sun, it says. Brighter than the sun. But there, no, no one nearby, the trees didn't get scorched, nothing got burned down. Um, the, the apostles fell down in awe. Okay, every time Gabriel comes, the angels, same thing happens. Um, so I can speculate. Well, speculate. <laughs> <laughs> My speculation is that we are, we are described as being temples for the Holy Spirit. We are bioelectric beings. Bioelectric. Okay? I think in unity with God, and I think we're very corrupted, like a corroded battery right now. And I think when we come back into unity with God and are healed, we actually have his divine presence literally dwell in us. And the more and more of his presence that we dwell in us, it actually has, he is a source of life and energy. And that life energy, which is not photons, it's energy from God, begins to flow through us. And we become radiant beacons of light. What kind of clothing did Adam and Eve wear in the garden? Light. They wore they, they, they radiated light. But it, but it wasn't just it wasn't photons like the sun. It was some other type of light. So, exactly how that works, I'm not sure physiologically, but I'm I'm expecting the closer we go to Christ, the more our neural network expands and the more we're able to have a network that can handle the inflow of that energy. And without a network that can handle that energy, it just causes the degradation, the, 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 the system will corrode with that energy. Now, Ellen White says that if Christ would have come with the glory share with the Father before his incarnation, what would have happened to those he came to save? They would have been destroyed. They couldn't have stood it. Yeah. Doesn't she say also in, in his finished and desire of ages that uh, when God returns that his glory will be like a consuming fire? Yes, and you get insights into that, Leviticus chapter, I can't remember the chapter, it was chapter 4, but Nadab and Abihu goes into the temple and they take unauthorized fire before the Lord, and it says fire came from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And the next verse, the cousins go in and carry them out, still in their tunics. Now if I hit you with a flamethrower and flamethrower you and burn you till you die, will you still be in your clothes when I'm done? No, this, this consumption, this fire of consumption, it, it, it is life-giving glory, it's love and truth. It says in Daniel 7 that the Ancient of Days takes his seat on his throne and rivers of fire come out from before him. And thousands and thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand stand in this fire. It doesn't cause any harm. The righteous will live forever in this glory. It's only harmful to minds and hearts that are out of harmony with the design that God has constructed life to work upon. All right, let's keep rolling. So, first paragraph, it says, People are fascinated by the, mirror, the miraculous and the magical. They are all, often are drawn to such things as spectacles and matters of curiosity and nothing more. As matters of curiosity and nothing more. So, when Jesus was asked to perform a miracle merely for entertainment or as a sign of his messiahship, or even to satisfy the legitimate needs of his own, he refused. The spirit by which Jesus taught authoritatively and effective uh, miraculous healings is not simply power to be used. We are to be the instruments in his hand. God would 
gladly heal everyone who is sick, but he is interested in more substantial, lasting healing. Thoughts about miracles. If you're in a board meeting and they were discussing whether, oh, a certain class should meet on campus or not. <laughs> and, uh, and somebody in the board meeting says, you know, the Lord has shown me that that class should never meet on campus, and I will show you. Um, there's a person in there who's got uh, a, 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 a leg that's deformed from polio in childhood, and he gets up and goes, in the name of the Lord, be healed. And everybody watches their leg just healed right there, boom. The Lord is supporting my view. What do you think the board would vote? <laughs> do you think if that happened, that means their view was right? No. You know, how about if they brought their dog in and they said, you know, the Lord has sent a message. My dog can speak and the dog gives them a message. Starts talking to them. Like Balaam's donkey talked to him. Do you think that people would be unsettled by that? Yeah. Should they believe it? Didn't a serpent talk in Eden? That was a miracle, wasn't it? Did that mean what the serpent said was true? No. You see, miracles don't... Pardon? They should probably be unsettled, but they shouldn't believe it. Exactly. Get your mind around that. Miracles do not determine truth. They do not determine truth. Don't be seduced and bought in by miracles. Miracles are going to be one of the ways that the people in the end will be seduced and duped. They look for the miraculous that shut down thinking, shut down inquiry. If it's a miracle, it must be from God. Now, it says in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, if a prophet arises among you or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder which he tells you comes to pass, it actually happens. And he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known. Let us serve them. You shall not listen to the word of that prophet or that dreamer or dreams. So if they come, now this is critical. If they come with miraculous signs but teach a picture of God different than what Jesus revealed. If they're that punitive God, that dictator God, that penal God, that God who has to be appeased, don't go after them. Don't believe it even if the miracles accompany it. How did Christ use miracles? Did he use them to prove himself? They asked him several times, give us a miracle, prove what you're doing is right. When miracles have happened in Scripture, in general, are the miracles performed for the strong in faith or the weak in faith? Get your mind around that too. When Gideon needed the miracles of the fleece, did he need that miracle because he has that strong faith or his faith needed to be encouraged? Encouraged. The ten plagues of Egypt, were, they, were those plagues because the people had such confidence in, in, in God that they could just trust him? Or that they were so afraid that God had to show that all the Egyptian gods were weak and he was the real God to strengthen their faith? Three and a half years of no rain in Mount Carmel. Who was that miracle for? Was that for Elijah's benefit? No, it was for the people worshiping Baal. They needed the miracle to see that Baal wasn't real. Peter and Paul were delivered from prison. Paul was bitten by a viper, shipwrecked. Miracles were performed. Was it primarily for their benefit? Or is it for the benefit of the emerging church and the spread of the gospel? All those who Christ, if you think about this, all those who Christ healed, the woman with the issue of blood, the lepers, the blind, what happened to them all? 50, 70, 100 years later, where were they all? They're in the grave. They died. This was not the healing that God really wants for us. Many people miss this. When even Lazarus, Lazarus was not raised to an immortal body to go to heaven at, at that time. He was simply restored to his life in a world of sin with a corruptible body. And, and, and I, I deal with people who grieve, who've lost loved ones in death. And I ask them, well, if, God, if Christ came, would you want him to resurrect your loved one? Most of the time, the initial riff like, yes! I said, to the same condition they were in? To continue on in, a, in their bone cancer and, and pain for another 10 years before they die? No. No. Do we see this, this what we call death, this experience of of what we call death, what Jesus called repeatedly sleep, 
Do we see this as a punishment for sin, as some do? Or do we recognize it is not a punishment for sin at all, as an act of mercy and grace? It's an artificial state of existence. The natural, there's two natural states of of existence. Natural meaning how things were built to operate. One, in harmony with God and you have eternal life. That's natural. You're unified with God, you live. Disconnected from God, the natural state there is? Non-existence. Non-existence, death. That's the wages of sin. Non-existence, disconnected. No more connection to the source of life. You, you don't exist anymore. These are the two states. This state in the middle where Jesus said, those who accept me will never die. Didn't he say this? Will never die. But they do what we call die. But Jesus called that sleep. This is an artificial state by God's grace and mercy to minimize pain, minimize suffering, and minimize the spread of sin. If you've known people who have had sickness that was very ravaging to their bodies, it's a mercy that they can rest until the resurrection. The beauty of unconsciousness. If you've known the wicked who are wicked, maybe they're not suffering physiologically, but they are truly evil people. Serial killers, rapists, uh, uh, megalomaniacs, Hitlers and Stalins and Neros. Do you realize what a mercy it is on this world that those people are sleeping? It's a mercy. Do we see it that way? I can tell you those people with that penal view... When God acted and put people in that state of, of suspended animation, they call it punishment for sin. It's not punishment. This is our desire of ages 407. When the message of truth is presented in our day, there are many who, like the Jews, cry, Show us a sign, work us a miracle. Christ wrought no miracle at the demand of the Pharisees. He wrought no miracle in the wilderness in answer to Satan's insinuations. He does not impart to us power to vindicate ourselves or to satisfy the demands of unbelief and pride. Get get this though, because this is really powerful. Get your mind around this. You'll see miracles everywhere. But the gospel is not without a sign of its divine origin. Is it not a miracle that we can break from the bondage of Satan. Enmity against Satan is not natural to the human heart. It is implanted by the grace of God. When one who has been controlled by a stubborn, wayward will is set free and yields himself wholeheartedly to the drawing of God's heavenly agencies, a miracle is wrought. So also when a man who has been under the strong delusion comes under the understand moral truth, Every time a soul is converted and learns to love God and keep his commandments, the promise of God is fulfilled. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. The change in human hearts, the transformation of human character, is a miracle that reveals an everlasting Savior. Is that the miracle we look for? Do you see how Satan tricks people to look for miracles that have no bearing on character? This is the miracle to watch for, seeing really transformed lives who love God and others. Which do you think is easier for God, to easier miracle to perform? Healing a disease, leprosy, blindness, or healing a character? Which is the easier? Healing physiological defects and do like that. Healing a character requires the cooperative, winning over and cooperative participation of the individual. Yes. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says, though dealing with two different things, suffering and cheerfulness, James links them with prayer and praise. Pray when you are suffering, praise when you are cheerful. The two practices are not uh, different from each other, however, because many biblical psalms of praise are also prayers. And James begins the epistle urging readers to consider it all joy when falling into various kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of their faith produces endurance. Why is it joy to fall into trials? What is your goal, parents, for your children, for yourself, your children, your grandchildren? What's your goal? Self-management. Well said. Well said. Self-management, self-governance. Well said. I can't tell many patients I have in my office that they worry over their kids. And I said, what are you worried about? 
Well, I'm worried they don't have a job. I'm worried they, they, they're not, they, they married the wrong person. I'm worried that, that they're not going to make enough money. I'm worried that they're not going to get a great career. I'm worried they're not going to finish school. I'm worried they're not going to... And I said, all those are, are, are potentially signs of a character issue, aren't they? But I, I, Jesus, what school did he graduate from? How much money did he make? How many homes did he own? What was his stock portfolio? He didn't have a pillow to lay his head. He lived on charity. You'd be, I bet if Jesus was your son, you'd be quite disappointed and thinking, what a failure. What a failure. If that's our measure of success, and our only measure of success, we miss the boat. And so many parents have as their goal for their kids to graduate from Harvard, to get a gold medal, to, uh, get, uh, to, to win American Idol, to, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is their goal, to be Miss America, to whatever. To, to be valedictorian at their school, to whatever it is, their goal, their goal, their goal. So win, 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 win. At all costs, win. Rather than the goal to, as you say, self-management, develop Christ-like character. Christ-like character. And what helps us develop that character? When things aren't going our way. It's easy to act nice and be magnanimous when everything goes your way. It's much harder. So pain is fertilizer for the soul. (laughs) It is. Think about the times you've done the most growth in your life. It's been through some difficulty. It's fertilizer for the soul. It helps us overcome weakness. It helps identify places that we struggle. And thus we rejoice in it. I had physical therapy on my knee after a dislocation one year. And I rejoiced in my physical therapy because it gave me my strength back. Even though it wasn't comfortable, I was happy for it. I was glad to go. I was eager. I was desiring. I, I couldn't wait to get that brace off where I could go. So my wife could stop putting my shoe on for me. <laughs> Had to drive me everywhere. It's like I get to drive again. I want to go. Does this mean, however, that every difficulty and every trial is brought upon us by God? No. no. Get your mind around that too. It is absolutely not. Look at the case of Joseph again. God did not bring upon him that. His, his brothers did this. Potiphar's wife did this. All of his trials, they did not come from God. But because he trusted God, because he, he maintained his clarity on his responsibilities. I'm not responsible for the fact my brother sold me. But now they sold me, I'm responsible for the, for the way I live my life and the choices I make. I'm not responsible for Potiphar's wife approaching me essentially. I'm responsible for rejecting that approach. I'm not responsible for her false allegations against me. And by the way, you all know that Potiphar did not believe his wife, don't you? If Potiphar would have believed his wife that Joseph attacked her, what would have happened to Joseph? He'd had a death sentence. He went to prison, which tells you that Potiphar did not believe his wife at all. And he had such respect for Joseph, but he had to protect the reputation of his wife. So his wife put him in a no-win situation, making this public allegations. He's got to take some action, so he sends him into prison. But that couldn't have happened if Joseph would have actually taken her up on it. He kept integrity, responsible for the decisions he made in governance of himself. But all those trials did not come from God, yes. So does hardship ever come from God? Yes, if you want to call it hardship, discipline. The Bible says the Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord does bring disciplines in order to help us, just like a parent might bring discipline. You know, I, I think it's one of the reasons, that I, you know, I haven't been blessed with more blessings because I would probably be lazy and wouldn't work as hard. So I, he only gives me just enough to get by so that I keep working hard. <laughs> because my, my carnal nature, my carnal nature is I would love to kick up, put my feet back, go golfing and take some ski trips. And, and I mean, life would be so much more fun, right? But I wouldn't get nearly as much done. <laughs> yes. Job got some pretty serious enlightenment through the trials brought on to him from Satan. Yeah, there's another example. Job's trials were not brought by. Is there any examples of God bringing trials? He led Christ into the wilderness to... To be tempted, always fairly like Christ in the wilderness to be tempted. There's a good example. Well, the drought with Elijah. The drought with Elijah. So what he was getting at is, does God allow bad things to happen or cause them? Both. Both. Absolutely both. That's why you have to be discerning. Sometimes God, for instance, did God bring the famine for three and a half years? Yes. On, on Israel, did God bring the famine for three and a half years when Elijah prayed? Yes. Sure he did. For a punishment's sake? or for a discipline's sake, to help wake them up and get them to repent. It was not designed to kill them, it was designed to save them. 
the, the death of the firstborn son in Egypt. All the plagues of Egypt were disciplines, were designed to show the, the impotency of those gods, that they weren't gods, and turn their hearts back. These were designed to save, not to punish. So yes, God sometimes does, but sometimes this brought by randomness in our society, evil people, evil agencies. All right, Monday's lesson. Boy, we're just running out of time. Monday's lesson, it says, read James 5. Uh, 14 and 15, it says, If any of you is sick, he should call the elders and uh, to the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Any thoughts about that? How many have seen that quoted, prayed over, and done? And does every person that happens get up because they're well? No. Then maybe we're misunderstanding the meaning. Not necessarily physically well, but spiritually. So here's my my paraphrase. If anyone is sick, he should be be sure to call the spiritual leaders to both ask God to intervene and treat you with appropriate medicinals, such as applying soothing oil, working in harmony with God's design, methods, and principles. Ask God to intervene, then trust him enough to follow his methods and principles. This will heal the character, and if it is in harmony with the Lord's plan, result in making the sick physically well and the lord will raise them up if illness is due to willful deviation from god's design it won't matter once trust in god is restored and the ill are well again first paragraph says see where are we here the fact that the sixth person calls for the elders of the church to come and anoint him or her with oil in the name of the lord and pray expresses the spiritual desire for the individual and and the collective conviction that divine intervention is necessary for healing. The reference to forgiveness of sins shows that God will not, by, uh, by means of ritual, restore person, a person physically who does not also desire spiritual healing. Why is it that we don't get well or can't get well if we refuse to repent? My thoughts were that God always heals his people, either immediately or over time or at the second coming. But eventually, he always heals his, pe- his people. Now, that is absolutely true. Did everybody hear that? Yes, he always heals his people. When is, is, not, is not always now, but always they will be healed. That's true. So, if, if we don't repent for sin, why is that an obstacle for God to heal us? Well, what is sin? Separation. Sin results in separation. Deviation from the natural lawlessness, deviation from the natural design of the law of God's systems, how He's built things. Yes, a deviation from the design. Can one get well outside the design? We are tripartite beings. Body, Greek word soma. We have somatic illnesses, illnesses of the body, or psychosomatic illnesses, illnesses in the mind that affect the body. Soma, body. Mind, the, Greek, uh, the, the New Testament calls the mind soul. And the Greek there is psyche. It's your individuality, your identity, your software, if you want to use a computer metaphor. Body is hardware. And we have an energy source. The spirit, pneuma, breath of life, the energy source. We're tripartite. Health requires health in all aspects of our being. If we're out of harmony with God's design, physiologically, because we just don't take care of our bodies. We corrupt our bodies with toxins of various kinds. It will affect our minds. We won't be able to think as well. We'll be more moody and impulsive. Even if we simply do something as simple as chronically have sleep deprivation. If we're chronically sleep deprived, the prefrontal cortex becomes impaired. We're more irritable. We're more moody. We're more impulsive. We have less self-restraint. If you have struggling with addiction issues, one of the big vulnerabilities to slipping back into addiction is sleep deprivation. Not getting sleep, you lose the self-restraint, the addiction cravings become stronger, and you end up acting out. This is why a lot of it happens late at night. People are up, they shouldn't be up, they should be in bed. That's why I tell people, couples, don't, don't try to fix a marriage problem late at night. Sleep on it, talk next morning. So do it late at night, your prefrontal cortex is shutting down. Say to your spouse, I love you too much to give you only half my brain. <laughs> you deserve my entire brain, so let's sleep on it, and you get my whole brain in the morning. And you'll have a much easier conversation. Promise you, try it. It will work. So, so these types of things. Also, if we're out of harmony with God's design psychologically, we believe a lot of lies. We're not being truthful. 
This interferes with our ability. If we don't repent, if we experience guilt, and, and we want the guilt to go away because I don't like guilt, so we don't repent, though, then we, what do we do? We deny and we, we distort. We warp our mind's way of seeing the world, and that warp is like putting a lens over our minds. Everything that we filter through this warped lens, we can't have accurate resolution of things because our minds are not being truthful. Thursday's lesson on the bottom, it says, uh, saving souls from death is possible only through the covering of sins by applying the gospel to our lives. Oh, no, the head, I, let, me, let me jump back, because there's a big point in, in uh, which day is it, Tuesday's lesson, where it talks about confessing our sins, and I wanted to say this point, confessing our sins one to another, does that mean we confess our sins to the one we sinned against? Sometimes. Nice answer. Sometimes. I can't tell you how many much injury has happened because of well-meaning Christian pastors, Christian counselors uh, that are somewhat naive in reality and will tell people that in order to have peace, they have to go to the person that's been wrong. They have to confess to that person. Now, I, I've seen this in my practice. A person who, at age 19, uh, you know, uh, married, deployed in the military, under a lot of stress, has an impulsive one-night stand with somebody, they come back, didn't tell their spouse. It's 25 years later. They've been loyal. They've been no more discretion, no more stepping out. Love their spouse tremendously, but they go to a church marriage retreat. And at the church marriage retreat, they, they say, if you've got unconfessed sin to your spouse that's committed any time in your marriage, you need to confess that sin. And they say, well, 25 years ago, I had this, and they put this on the spouse that never knew. Do you think this is healing? This is destructive. This is harmful. This is not, this is not an active, ongoing problem of character in the husband. The husband is, has, has, has had a change of heart before God, is now loyal and faithful and trustworthy. Now, if the person was still going on and having this problem, yes, then they need to talk about, yes, I, I'm still cheating, I'm doing this all these years. But not this. And what happens, I've seen marriages collapse because of this, because the person who gets told has the whole gamut of, their whole vision, you've been lying to me all these years, our whole marriage is a fake, I can't trust you, how could you have done this? And all these things to go through, resentment, bitterness, hostility, this is not the person to confess to. Confession needs to be judicious. So the 12 steps again, the 12 steps, in the 12 steps, there is one where it says... Um, Yes, and step five, admitting to God, to ourselves, and, an, and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. So there's a place for confession. But step nine, um, step eight is be willing to make amends. But step nine is make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And that is exactly right. And sometimes people do this because they want the burden off themselves and they tell the other person, it's on you now. I've confessed. I've been cleansed before God. I've repented to you. I've done my duty. If you can't get over it, that's your fault. I've seen this. It's cruel. It's selfish. It's not an act of love. So help people with this. If, if you've ever in a position where somebody says, well, I, I'm, I'm thinking about telling my wife, well, when did it happen? What's the circumstance? How long ago? What's the purpose? Why would you tell them? And every one of them that have done this in the context and the situation where I just described that have come to me regretted doing it because it really ruined the marriage. And it didn't need to because it really wasn't an ongoing issue. I said, when you can tell them, you can tell them when you get to heaven. You can then. You can tell them then. Because it won't matter. Because their fears, their insecurities, because you're telling somebody who has their own fears and insecurities and telling them that inflames all kinds of fears and insecurities in them. And then I guess I was going to close up with this idea of covering and what does that mean to have your sins covered. Just jump into the notes and remember, covering is not a covering over. It is a writing over. Think about it as a computer operating system and you have bad code. You have bad code. You've got a virus on your operating system. And what comes in is the designer of the program comes in and overwrites the bad code with the true code. 
It's not a covering over, it's an overwriting. You get a new heart and right spirit. You're, the, it's no longer I live for Christ lives as me. Here's Christ's object lessons, 311. The, the, only the covering which Christ himself has provided can make us ready to appear before Christ. This covering is the robe of his own righteousness. And then it goes on to say, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity with him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed in the garment of his righteousness. Notice, it's a writing over into the heart and character of a new mode, method, way of thinking and reasoning. It is not a covering over. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have, through Jesus Christ, provided all we need to be restored into your original ideal. You've brought us the truth that wins us to trust that we know you are on our side and you do not have to be persuaded to, to be for us, that you're always for us. And that through Christ you have the remedy, the perfect character of Christ that you long to reproduce in us if we'll only let you and cooperate. So we open our hearts now, invite in the Spirit, ask for transforming presence to write your law in our hearts and minds that we will be like you and give us the power and ability to share this message with others. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And I do need to uh, get a couple announcements, and this might primarily for our online listeners. Uh, we're still receiving mail sent to the old address. We do have a new mailing address, and the new mailing address is in the notes, but for those who don't get our notes online, it is on our website as well. But the mailing address is P.O. Box 28266, Chattanooga, Tennessee, 37424. So just want to update that. And as you know, the Journal of the Watcher is now available for both Android and Apple devices, and it's really doing well, getting a lot of nice feedback. I received this email this week from an online listener. He says, we continue to receive e- uh, he says, I, I greatly appreciate um, if you would uh, please send me three copies of each of the seminars. I want to let you know that I have greatly enjoyed the, your latest project, the Journal of the Watcher. It is a great resource that I will be sharing with family and friends. I'm also planning to visit family over the holiday season and would like to give away some of the video seminars since I have been so personally blessed by them. Please receive my most sincere thanks, capital thanks, and please extend our best wishes to your staff and supporters of your class, that's you guys, uh, which we never miss out on. May God continue to bless your ministry and that of his truth may be continually shared by all your efforts. So just letting you know you guys are being appreciated and thanked as well. 